chapter 6 now, and I uh, just want you to kind of put your finger there and, and get ready there. I should ask you to pray with me, because it's a lot of verses we're, we're going to cover, uh, all of chapter 6, touch just the top of chapter 7. Well, it looks like a lot, but we're going to move through it at a good pace, I think, but pray that uh, we would be benefited by this time that I would get out of the Lord's way. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that we would leave here different than we walked in because of our time, because of the truths that we sang, because of the truths that we see on the pages of Scripture right now. Uh, They're your words, and they're transformative. Allow them to pierce our hearts, change our hearts, enliven our hearts, Lord, to live uh, in light of all that you teach us, Father. We We need your grace for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about a difficult topic of death and how death got here. And we understand that the way death got here, remains here, is through sin. And sin is powerful. And today we're going to talk about not necessarily individual sins. I did this, I did that but sin in general, its power, its weight. Um, Some of you maybe have been Christians for a long time, and there's still some things that nag at you. There's still some things that pull you back in. Some of you are struggling with some private stuff that the closest people next to you maybe aren't aware of, and you're ashamed of it, and you're trying to kill it, and you're having a hard time with it. Um, But all of us, in one way or another, recognize that sin is powerful, it's alluring, uh, it's weighty. And Paul gives us this text in chapter 6 to really help us with that. But you remember in last, the last chapter, he w- took us back to Genesis to talk about Adam. And it dawned on me kind of late in the game, I said, you know, I thought really where what Paul is talking about today really started back in Genesis 4. Do you remember uh, Adam and Eve fell? And so now everyone has got this weight of sin. Everyone has sinned in that action in the garden. And what the book of Genesis is trying to do is not just show you how sin got here, but how it operates. And you remember uh, Cain and Abel offered their offerings to the Lord, and uh, Abel's was accepted and Cain's wasn't, and Cain wasn't real happy about that. Cain wasn't real happy about that. He was the kind of worshiper that's like, didn't I attend? Didn't I lead a Bible study? I shouldn't have this in my life. That's Cain. And that took him down a dark path really quick. But what I love about that passage, God doesn't wait for Cain to sin and then like, see, you sinned. I'm going to kill you now. Actually, he doesn't kill him. But before Cain does it, like a good father, God pulls Cain aside, and he's like, why are you upset? God knows that anger is going to lead to some messed up stuff, and pulls him aside, and asks him, why why are you upset? If you do well, then I'll accept you. We're good if you do well, but if you don't do well, now here's what you think God would say, then I won't accept you. He, He says it's bad for you. If you don't do well, Cain, sin is crouching, like a thug in an alley, waiting for you to walk by to master you, to pounce on you. In Hebrew says the sin is against you. And he tells Cain, but you must rule over it. 
Sin is an, is an enemy. Sin is difficult. It pounces on you sometimes when you don't expect it. It grows. It brews. It starts with jealousy. Then it ends up in murder, etc. But God is telling Cain, like, like a good coach or a dad, sin wants to master you, but you have to master it. Now, the point of Genesis 4 is not to just tell you, uh, here's how the first murder happened. The point of Genesis 4 is to tell you, uh, isn't that our experience? We're not supposed to look at that and go, Cain. <laughs> we probably often do, Cain. What a jerk. Glad I'm not like him. I think Genesis 4 is to help you understand Cain is like you. Because there's a part of you that wants to do well, but there's another part of you that really can't. And actually, before God does something about it, we all share Cain's inability. Sin pounces and sin has its way. Well, Gen uh, Romans chapter 6 is here to undo Genesis 4 and to tell you, you don't have to sin because if you're in Christ, sin is not your master. The way sin mastered Cain, it shouldn't master you. And you're not Cain anymore. You were Cain, and you're not Cain anymore. If you don't hear anything else I say today, when you go home today, this week, and the same temptations hit you, the same lures, the same temptations, the same kinds of Iterations of sin that crouch and look to pounce on you and seek to master you. There was a time where you would have just been Cain. But if you're in Christ, it can't master you. It cannot master you. You master it. And what I love about Romans 6 is Paul is addressing sin and not saying, just do better, guys. Just be better. Why don't you try harder? Why don't you get more accountability partners? Why don't you spend more time in the Word? If you turned your TV off, you'd sin less. Probably all of those are true in some way. But again, channeling God's fatherness, his, his approach is don't, don't continue in sin because that's not who you are. That's not you. And if you continue to believe a lie that it is you, you won't win. Well, he sets it up with an opening question in chapter 6, verse 1, which is kind of a dumb question, but, I mean, maybe some of us have wrestled with it and, uh, you know, have, have thought of it. But he's imagining somebody asking a question. He says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I'm not sure I've ever met somebody who's like, oh, wow, the more I sin, the more God is gracious. The more God is gracious, grace is a good thing. So more grace, if I sin more, why don't I go sin tonight? I'm not sure if I've ever heard, seen somebody like logically, you know, deduce it that way. But Paul is using it as a way to, to shut down this idea that if God is so gracious and good things happen, the more grace I get, then what's, what's the point? And maybe none of us has asked that question explicitly. We haven't pulled out a whiteboard. Wait a minute, grace, sin, more sin, more grace. Therefore, we haven't mapped it out like that. But maybe something inside of us is like, what's the point of the fight? God is going to lavish grace. God is going to get glory. We, we, we gather at conferences where the ex-gangbanger is giving his testimony. 
do we gather at conferences where, where the testimony is, I grew up reading the Bible. Oh, I memorize it all the time. Good for you, you jerk, we think sometimes in the back of our minds. I want to hear the person that totally changed because it gives such glory to God. That person was a murderer. That person was a, a thief. And they changed. Wow, that's wow, right? The wow factor. Well, he's saying we should not lean into sin because of the wow factor. And his reasoning is because that's not who we are. Something happened for us. Now, I'm talking to people in here who are in Christ. Some of you are on the outside. You're not a Christian. And what you're going to hear is um, maybe a struggle with sin that sounds different than what you're experiencing right now. We're going to look at that a little bit. But his audience is the Christian. He's not saying everybody has this ability. Everybody can conquer sin. No, if you're not in Christ, you're Cain. And sin's your daddy. Period. But if you are in Christ, then that's not true anymore. Why? Because you died to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You can't live that life. That life is dead. You have a different life. You have a new life now. Why would you live the old life? Verse 2, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, here's the purpose of it, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is why we can't proclaim the power of Christ's resurrection as miraculous as that was if we haven't experienced resurrection life. Paul is saying the same power that got Jesus out of that tomb is the same power that changed you. That's power. So it doesn't make sense to say, well, if, if I have all this power, why don't I just live the life when I was powerless? No, you live the life now that you're powerful. Now that something has happened, something's happened in the past that changes you now. What I like about our mode of baptism in this church and across many churches uh, throughout the history of the church to fully immerse a believer, I'm not going to get into the debates about sprinkling and all this kind of stuff, but I'm talking about the symbolism of it. I remember... Uh, we had a, uh, I believe, a, a Persian convert, uh, not at this church, but they didn't have a place to be baptized, and so they came here and, and met with me and a mutual friend. Their pastor it was a small group, about six or seven, and there was a little worship time and lyrics I didn't understand. And uh, I remember her request. I thought it was odd at first, but I, I just I keep thinking about it, and she asked, when she asked the pastor, when you put me down in the water, can you just hold me there for a little bit? I was like, well, you want to get waterboarded? Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. She just wanted to be in there and, like, be fully immersed, fully ensconced, fully um, covered. And she said, I'll squeeze your hand when I'm ready. And she did, and she came up and started weeping, and it was an awesome service. She's getting the symbol of what's happening there. Something old is dead, and that is not you anymore. Someone else has come up out of that water. And it's amazing, I think, when we do that in here, and the person comes up out of the water to cheers and music and clapping, and we're not cheering them so much as we're praising God for applying that resurrection power that he applied to Christ, applying it to us. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a, a service. It's not a box to check. I was baptized. 
doesn't get you brownie points with God, you know? It's a symbol of something that has already happened in your life. Something died. Someone died there, and someone else rises. You're a changed person. You've got people that so badly want to change their identity. They want to change their gender. They want to legally change their name. They want to change their whatever. This is a complete, utter change from the inside out. The world can only try to make changes from the outside in. Surgeries and tattoos and haircuts and piercings. Paul is saying that the real change that you need, if you want to get out of the trap that Cain couldn't get out of, it's to be changed from the inside out. And if you're a Christian, that was you. You were different. You were buried with him in baptism, by baptism into death, verse 4. So what he's saying is, remember back in chapter 5, last week's sermon that was so difficult to ingest, I think, for a lot of us? It was for me as I was preparing it. We don't love the fact that in Adam we died. But when we don't embrace that, we don't get that in Christ we live. You know, it, we're like, well, I, I wasn't there in the garden, so why should I get death? That same thinking, well, I wasn't there on the cross, so I don't really have life. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Christ did it on our behalf so that what Christ accomplished, we get that. We get that new life, even if you didn't earn it. You don't come out of the baptismal waters like, okay, now, the first way I earned God's love. No, it's, you come out of the water, I'm a transformed person. How do I live my life that matches it? And he continues in verse 5. For if we have been united with him, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Here's the purpose again. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your body, the, old, the body of uh, sin has been brought to nothing. He's not saying that the body is sinful. Uh, what we need to do is shed these nasty, ugly, decrepit bodies that are full of sin and just be released as spirits. This is why so many Christians don't look forward to heaven. They don't look forward to the new earth because we're disembodied spirits floating around. We just imagine a... a you know, a millennium has gone by. We're still singing holy, holy, holy. Like, are we ever going to move on to another song? Boring, you know. But we're physical beings on a new earth with grass and rocks and a body that doesn't ache. You know, I mean, eyes that can actually see. That's amazing. So he's not saying the body is bad because Christ rose physically, so... Christ has a physical body. It's not that the physical body is bad. But what he's saying is the body represents that place where sin happens. You know, the, the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and all the utensils, so to speak, that we use of our body to, to sin and to stay in that trap. And he's saying that's what died. Our old self is that body of sin. And pay attention. If we died with him, not if you died with him and led a Bible study for 30 years or did all these other things. If you, if you simply died with him by faith, what Christ did and accomplished is, a, is a, a 
imputed to you, attached to you, if that's true of you, the body of sin was brought to what? Weakness? It was made a little bit easier to defeat? Brought to nothing. Nothing. That master that had full control over you before has zero control over you. You might feel like you're addicted to something. You might feel like it has power over you. But it does not have that power that it had over Cain. It doesn't. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It means that when we do, we didn't do it because we, we couldn't help it. It, it. it overtook us. It's too powerful for us, God. No, it's not. He brought that monster down to nothing. It doesn't count toward you. And you have power to live against it. Why? The end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It doesn't mean sin doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it won't crouch anymore. It doesn't mean that it's not against you anymore. It just means that it's not your master anymore. Still got to fight it. Still got to deal with it. Still got to recognize it, right? Still need to confess it when it happens. But it's not your master so what God and Christ did wasn't to obliterate sin, not yet, that will happen, but he obliterated its power, not its presence. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Christ we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it says that Jesus... Uh, took on sin, dealt with sin, died to sin. It doesn't mean that Jesus did sin. It means that Jesus took on the consequence of sin, which was death, and he defeated it. Why? To just show off for eternity? Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah. But the show off is not just that he did it. The show off is that what he did was so powerful, he makes you do it. You defeat sin now because of what he did. That's where the real glory kicks in. He brings it to nothing. And the way he does that is through his death on the cross and resurrection into new life so that we can be brought into that and live with him. The end of verse 8. We're raised from the dead. Verse 9. And death no longer has dominion over him. What he's saying is death now has no longer dominion over you because he died to sin once for all, an effective one. It wasn't, doesn't need to be added to and he doesn't have to do it again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's almost too simple to preach. We almost would prefer that Paul lays out, here's a 10-step, you know, if you do these things, you'll be able to conquer sin. If you don't do these things, you'll be able to resist sin. And some of those things, they're true. If you spend less time around the temptation, will that help you? Yes. The more time you spend not doing a certain sin, does that kind of build a resilience in you to not do it again? Yeah, that's true. Do accountability partners help? You know they do. Does the Bible talk about the discipline of confession? Of course it does. 
And it's not that all those things don't apply. It's just amazing to me that his command isn't stop it or do this. His command is consider this fact. That's it. That's, it. that's, his, that's his imperative in verse 11. All he's been doing so far is describing stuff. And now in verse 11, he finally points his finger to them and tells them what they're supposed to do is consider a theological fact. We're tempted to think theology doesn't really have much application for our lives. It's, that's, that can't be further from the truth. It's what you know to be true that changes you. And so he doesn't ask them to pick themselves up by the bootstrap, try a little bit harder. Why don't you guys get your act together? He's not even thinking of particular sins. He doesn't, he's never even met these people. Do you remember back in Romans 1? He longs to go be with them. He's never met these people. So this is true of Christians everywhere, all time. No matter where you're from, where you've been, what you've done, this power is for you if you are in Christ. And verse 11 is a, a command for each of us. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. If you don't get to that place where you understand you're dead to sin and alive to God, you'll have a hard time living into it. Once you make that consideration, you really believe it, what does your life look like? Now he can give you the command in verse 12. Now he can say stop it. Because verse 12 says, let sin not therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, it could be translated instruments or weapons, the things that you do, your body, the thing, again, like the ears, the eyes, the mouth, the nose, everything you use that is involved in, in our disobedience, don't do that. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. See verse 9, death no longer has dominion over Christ. Well, of course, he's Christ. I know, but he's, he, what he did is so amazing. It no longer has dominion over you. Therefore, if we live lives where sin has a hold on us, if you've got something that's nagging at you, the first thing you need to do is understand and believe it doesn't have a hold on you. You might be holding it. But it's not your bully. It's not your master. This is not the big, bad bully after, you know, after school that would beat you up you know, on your way home. Sin is now a wimp. And so if it's a big, bad monster in our lives, it's because we're not connecting the dots somewhere along the way. But he's saying it's not big, bad bully that you can't defeat. It's not this master that has dominion over you. Sin has no dominion over you because you are under grace. You're not under the law. The law just exposes that you didn't do this and you did do that. And you, here's what you did yesterday and here's what you couldn't do t today. It's not that the law is bad, but the law exposes all that, sheds light on all the do's and don'ts and all the failures. Grace doesn't do that. But grace also doesn't just wave a wand like, forget it. It never happened. Grace changes you to do something else. That's why he says you're not a slave to this, but you're a slave to God. You're not a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness. 
You are built to have a master. I know that runs against the grain of our American individualism. But you were created to worship. That's why in the beginning of Romans, Paul said, when they cast off God as not worshiping him, what do they do? They worship other things. Because we're worshipers. But when we're not worshiping God, sin is our master, has dominion over us. When we're rescued in Christ, God's our master, and he has dominion. And we want him to have dominion because it's a dominion of grace. It's freedom. He continues in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, at first blush, when you, read, when you read verse 20, when you were slave to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Doesn't that sound, maybe that sounds easy. <laughs> I was free with regard to the do's and don'ts. I was free. Well, he doesn't say free with regard to the law. He says you were free with regard to righteousness. You were dead to righteousness, meaning you can't do righteousness. You can't. You had an inability. No matter how much exposure you have to how good God is and how beautiful he is, you can't partake in that beauty. I can't partake in that beauty because I'm dead to God. I'm alive to the ugly stuff. But not anymore, he says. That's been reversed so that you're dead to sin, and it doesn't have mastery over you, but you are alive to the things of God. So you were slaves to sin before, and in that regard, you were free, free from righteousness, which is not a good thing. And it's not a good thing because look at what he says in verse 21. What was the result of it? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? What did you really get out of that freedom? You didn't have to go to church. You didn't have to read your Bible. You don't have to be faithful to your spouse. Where does that, where does that lead a family? It didn't get you anything but heartache. And in the end, all it gets you is death, he says at the end of verse 21. For the end of those things is death. That's where it leads. But now, verse 22, now you have been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get, what's it like to be God's slave, God's servant? What's it like for God to be your master? Well, it leads to being made holy. That's what sanctification means. You see it at the end of verse 19, here again in verse 22. It means you get made holy. You, you become like him. And the end of it, where does it lead? Not to death. It leads to eternal life. And then, of course, the famous verse 23, how did death get here? Because we paid for it with our sin. How did eternal life get here? Because we didn't pay for it. Jesus did. But it's a free gift for us. We accept it. We receive it. We believe it. And that leads to not just sanctification now, but to eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's amazing. So as he moves through chapter 6, you see this constant repetition 
that we're not living under the weight and the mastery of sin any longer. But instead, we've been put in a different position so that we have the power that it takes to live for God. So you don't have to click that page. You don't have to consider some other person that way besides your spouse. You, you don't have to give into anger and sin in it. You don't have to steal. You don't have to lie. Now, lying might get me out of this situation. But that's what, the, that's what the sin slave master used to tell me. My new master says, just tell the truth. Don't worry about the collateral damage or the fallout. Just tell the truth. Truth sets you free. Free, free, freedom. Live in freedom. But tell the truth. See, the old me wouldn't have said the truth there. But I'm different now. So as we think about this change from uh, being constantly defeated by sin, now being the one who, in Christ, defeats sin because Christ defeated it, it's helping you understand that if we live lives that are meandering, full of sin, we kind of keep stumbling the same thing over and over again, the problem is our theology. The problem is our under lack of understanding that we've been positioned in Christ for freedom and that you don't have to do it even in those moments where it feels so tempting and you feel the draw just like Jesus did. Jesus felt the weight of temptation, but he didn't give in because he had power over it. He gives us that power. He continues at the top of chapter 7. We're just going to do this first uh, six verses here because I think he's, he's still driving this home. And next week we'll deal with the rest of chapter 7. But he uses a really weird illustration here about a woman uh, in marriage. And I thought about this. I'm like, this is going to take time because anytime we think of marriage and divorce, it, it, it's a painful, hurtful topic. It's also a topic that is debated and everything like that. I'm not skirting the issue. I just don't think Paul is trying to talk about marriage here. He's using it as an example. Let's read it. Let's read it, and then I'll explain. First three verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. He's not talking about are there exceptions. He's not even talking about when does a man, what, what does a man do. He's specifically talking about under Jewish law, the woman could not issue a certificate of divorce. Under Jewish law, the only way a woman is out of a marriage is if the husband dies. Now, he's using that as an example to say, don't you understand when you're dead to something, it no longer is binding on you. That's, that's his simple point. He's not trying to unpack marriage. He's not trying to shame divorcees. There are other passages to help us with that. But Paul's point is easily missed if we just start, you know, getting, you know, thinking about marriage and divorce and are there exceptions and what about this? What about the guy? That's not fair. Was Jewish law fair? Other places of scripture to unpack that. His simple point is, you know, Romans, the, you that love the law so much, you're talking about to the Jewish uh, part of the audience. You understand that the Jewish woman 
was bound by that law, and the only thing that broke that binding was death. Similarly, you used to be enslaved to sin, but you died to that. So, so why, why would you live it? Why would you live in that? That's gone. It's gone. That is in the past. That is not you anymore. That used to be you. That's not you anymore. And so his illustration here is, is simply trying to explain to them, giving them an illustration. No illustration is perfect because you would have thought, well, she didn't die. The husband died. How does that work? He's just saying death breaks, breaks the slavery. Now, he's not saying that marriage is slavery. He's bringing it alongside as an illustration of something binding that's no longer binding. Sin, that is slavery, but it's broken. It's broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, verse 4 explains that, that point. Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We can't just be dead to that. We need to be alive to this. We can't just leave a sinful past behind us. We have to live a righteous life in front of us. And so God is not content to just leave you merely forgiven, but he wants you to live a life that's full of fruit in order that we may bear fruit for God. And the point here is you can. You can bear fruit. Now, some of us, we've been in the church for a long time, and we kind of start learning each other, and the more we confess and share and talk, we can think about ways in which maybe we're stuck spiritually, right? Like we, we grow in early years in Christ, and then sometimes we teeter off, and there's still some things that we still haven't really fixed. And he's saying, you can still do that. There's no, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. In Christ, you bear fruit because it doesn't have power over you anymore. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's interesting. How were our sinful passions aroused by the law? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I think maybe... Some of us can think back to certain times in our lives where you weren't thinking about stealing cookies. It wasn't until your mom told you, those cookies are for our guests. Don't touch those cookies. Those cookies never looked so good until that law came out. It could be possible that Adam and Eve were like, oh, look, a tree. There's all these trees with all these fruit. It wasn't until the law said you can't eat that tree. God said you can eat every tree, every fruit. Everything is yours. You can't just have this one, this one tree, this one single tree. Something about the law stirs you toward it. And you find out that you're not supposed to do it. You start thinking about it. And when you start doing it, it pulls you further. And it started at this level and it increases to these other levels. And the law tends to have that effect. So there's nothing wrong with the law. Together with the psalmist in Psalm 1, we delight in the law of the Lord. It's beautiful. But outside of Christ, we can't do it. So it only shows us, you didn't do that. Sin one again, you didn't do it. Sin one again. The law is like the referee on the mat, and you're wrestling sin, and the referee is like, 
Sin got another point. Sin got another point. Sin got another point. You cannot score on sin. That's not, the, law is pro, the law is not evil. The law just constantly points out how many times you're getting pinned, right? And now he's saying, but now you're free to live into the law so that sin gets no points. You get all the points. So the law function is just exposing who's winning here. And now you win because you bear fruit for God. At the end of verse 5, he says, uh, those were at work to bear fruit for death, which is the opposite of how he ended verse 4, bearing fruit for God. Let's finish at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive before, so that we serve now in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, that ref constantly calling you out for getting pins. Here's a simple point. Living under the abounding grace of God means we're free. But it doesn't mean we're free to sin. It means we're free from sin. And I don't know where you are right now. (laughs) This is not meant to be a condemning sermon. It's meant to be the opposite. If you are not in Christ, you are condemned. I'm not condemning you. We all are condemned outside of Christ. But if you're in Christ, you're not condemned, actually. And this sermon shouldn't feel condemning. It should feel freeing. Because Paul's point is not, hey, hey, you sinned last night. Sinner. No, he's saying, you, don't, you didn't have to. Because you're a Christian. And Christ has done something in your life to give you a power that maybe you're not utilizing right now. Or maybe it's, you're not considering it. You're not connecting the dots. But the way to live the powerful life of yielding fruit for God is to begin by recognizing God has done that change in you. Now, maybe he hasn't done that change in you. Maybe you feel completely powerless. And it could be, i got to put this there, it could be that you're confusing conversion with churchiness. I mean, you grew up in church, you went to church, maybe somebody dunked you, but did it ever really click? At some point in your life, it has to click that your identity has changed, that you've left behind all the I can do it, I can't do it stuff, and you've put your faith in Christ who has done it. And when that conversion has happened, you've converted from this old person to this new person. You are able to defeat sin. So defeat it. Kill it. And I love how he points out, hey, we do that together. We belong to one another and to Christ so don't bear this burden alone. One of the advantages of our, of our growth groups and outside of growth groups, the times where we get together and talk and pray is to encourage one another in this. But we encourage one another not as the old person who couldn't do stuff, but the new people who can. We have this ability in Christ. So let's do it. Let's bear fruit for God. Let's pray. Father, we are... We're thankful uh, that uh, we don't have to come here Sunday after Sunday to learn about all the things that continue to show us where we are uh, failing and unable to live the way we're supposed to, but instead we get exposed to who you are and then realize we can, we can follow in that, that you, you communicate to us who you are so that we can live it so, Father, I pray for those of us in here this morning who are struggling with sins that are weighty, 
repeated sins that crouch, and when they, when they, when they pounce, we feel powerless against them. And uh, God, we, we don't want to live like that. We don't want to live bullied by sin when we have power over it. We have what Cain didn't have. We have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would give us the grace to apply it in our lives. Let's look it dead in the eye, see it for what it is. Instead of hiding it, stuffing it in a back closet, let's confess it, let's own it, and then let's, let's defeat it by your grace. As we close in this song, Lord, may we sense uh, the truth of this passage, that we are dead to sin and alive to you in Jesus Christ, and that you give us what it takes to live like it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in the song.